Well, I've had the privilege of doing over 300 weddings. In, in fact, it's getting, I don't know how many, it's going to be under, it's under 310, but it's getting closer there. Wedding, each wedding is unique. It is. I have this policy that I do not do a wedding until, uh, unless I have the opportunity to have, do the premarital counseling. And I think of the 306 or 7 or whatever I've done, I think there have been two times in my history that I'd married someone without doing their premarital counseling. One is they'd already gotten premarital counseling from somebody else, and I trusted that. And uh, so most of the time that's what I do. It's surprising how many couples get married and don't have any premarital counseling beforehand. One of the issues, and what I do is when I do it, I make sure they understand the role of the husband, the role of the wife, budgets and children, and, of course, the issue that they believe the same. Sometimes you would, I just have to say this, I have people come into my office, and they want me to do their wedding, and I start talking to them because I have to find out whether they both know Christ as Savior. And what you find out is one of the spouses has no idea what the other person even believes, whether they're even a Christian or not. And you're saying, you're fixing to marry this person, and you don't know this? You don't have to talk to them about this sort of thing? So it's surprising that the roles. As I mentioned, one of the key aspects, of course, we see is, is when we think about uh, Christ and the church is, is this idea, the role of husband and wife go back to the roles of Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. And so we're going to see that this morning. It won't take us very long to go through it, so we might get into grow groups a little early. But the relationship of Christ to the church is the relationship of the groom to the bridegroom. Let me remind you of the seven ways that we're going through this study. We've already done the very first one, which is the shepherd and the sheep. He's the good shepherd. We're the sheep. He lays down the life of the sheep. So the emphasis is salvation. We're now seeing he's the groom and we're the bride. And as we look at this, he's that perfect groom, we're the bride. And we're seeing the emphasis is relationship. Then we, we're going to get to this one. This one is a little bit hard. I've been working on this one uh, just to put it together. It's taken me a while, this last Adam, new creation, because sometimes we don't see how it actually fits together. But because of our connection with the last Adam, we become a new creation. So we'll see that, and that's why it's a new person. And then one of my favorite ones is that he's the high priest, and we're the priest. And if I said to you, do believers today offer sacrifices? Most people would say, well, no, because that was the Old Testament. We do offer sacrifices. I'll show you what they are. It deals with worship. We're going to look at the, he's the vine, we're the branches. That's the famous passage uh, from John. And it talks about he's the vine, we're the branches. Anybody abides on him, we can produce much fruit, that kind of thing. So the idea there is growth. And then he's the head and we're the body. And Paul uses that analogy about one head with many parts to the body, and, and that's where we talk about service. And then finally, last but not least, is he's the cornerstone. He's the main building block, and we are the building blocks, and the whole idea is the evangelism of the growth of the body. So over these weeks, I think we'll have a lot of fun as we go through these things. Uh, I love it, so uh, I guess it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. If I love it, I'm, you know, I'm just kidding. So we're gonna, we're gonna, we've looked at Christ as the, the shepherd, and the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's the Savior. He's the one that brings the security. We talked about that. Now we're looking at the groom and the bride. And, and the husband and the wife are the pictures of Christ and the church. And if you ever looked at Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22, going through the end of the chapter, he basically says, wives do this, husbands do this, da, da, da. He goes all the way through it. And then at the very end, in verse 32, he says, this is a great mystery. This is a great mystery, but I'm, re I'm speaking. Now, he's just talked about husband, wife, husband, wife, husband, wife. He says, this mystery is great, and I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So what he actually says is when we talk about the roles of the husband and wife, we're actually talking about the roles of Christ and the church. And we saw last time the role of the groom, that's Christ. And what we said is the groom loves 
the bride enough to die for us, and Jesus Christ came and died for us. We've seen the groom sets us apart, makes us holy. That's what we've seen. Uh, And then we see that the groom provides and protects. And so that's what we saw last week, and that's the role of, of the husband, but that's also the role of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we look this morning, and we're going to look at the role of the wife, the bride, and that's really us. And so there's three things there in the same way, three things that we'll see, and we don't necessarily have to go to other places, or we'll just look at this passage, but we'll tie it together. The first one is that she loves her husband. Now, Ephesians doesn't say that, but over in Titus it says, love your, and in fact, it actually says be a husband lover. It's one word in the Greek. It says be a husband lover. So it means the idea of loving your husband. And that's what we're supposed to do. And, of course, the Bible tells us from the end of it as, as believers back to our, to our bride, to our groom, it says we, we love because he what? First loved us. So we're supposed to love Jesus because why? Because he first loved us. And we don't always think about it that way. And this is love. Not that we love God, but God loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If he so loved us, we ought to love one another. And he goes on to say, because he, we love him because he first loved us. We respond. We respond. And that's really the biblical aspect. The husband is supposed to be the, not the aggressor, but the one who goes, and the wife is the responder in the same way in the church. Here's Jesus Christ. He's the main one. We respond to him. And so just as he loves us enough to die for us, we're to respond in love to him. And a lot of times, you know, when people think about love, one of the challenges that I find as a Christian, and even in my own personal life, is that there's a lot of people who who when they think of God, they don't think of feelings as much. Uh, there are people who grew up without a father, or they grew up separated from their father, or they grew up with a distant father. And sometimes those people, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a truth that, to it that a lot of people picture God in, in the way that they had a relationship with their father. And if they had a really close knit, loving relationship with a father, a lot of times these people say, oh, I have a really close, knit, loving relationship with my heavenly father. But if their father was distant or gone, Susie can tell you this from the counseling end of it, that if their father was gone all the time, sometimes they'll say, I just feel like God's distant. He's not, but that's how they feel that. My dad was gone a lot. I'm an emotional person, but in my emotion with God, my father, I don't have that kind of emotion because my father was gone all the time. He'd leave on the Monday and come back on the Friday. He was a territory manager for BF Goodrich, and he was gone a lot. I loved him. I knew he loved me, but we, I didn't get to be with him very much. It's so weird. I can remember to this day, to this exact moment, the one Saturday morning, my daddy said, do you want to go with me? I'm going to go meet. And we went and stopped at a restaurant, and I got, I, I can remember exactly the food I got. I remember where we sat. That's what the impact fathers have on us. So in my, this is just me telling you the truth. My emotions, I'm an emotional person. I love stuff. I cry, I laugh. I love all that stuff. But when you say God the Father and me, I don't have, I personally don't have a whole bunch of an emotion there. But I know people who do have a lot of emotion. So I, I think that when we think about he loving us and we're to love him, so we're to love him because he what? First loved us. There's a second thing, and that's to submit. 
And we all know that, and the passage reads it, and everybody gets all upset, or some people do in our culture today. Uh, husbands, love your wives, and wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, so the wife to order to submit to their husbands. The word submit is a... Let me, let me just throw something out for you, just so you can know it. In the Greek, there's a word for obey, and there's a word for submit. You've always heard people, wives should you know, love and obey their husbands. The Bible never says wives to obey their husbands. It doesn't say that. Says submit. Obey is a hupo, uh, excuse me, hupo akuo, a Greek word. Hupo akuo. Hupo means under. Akuo means to hear. We get acoustics from it, and it words to obey, and it's where it says, children, obey your parents. A parent can come in and say, go to your room. Children are to obey. It never says, wives, obey your husbands. It says submit. It's a different word. It's hupo tasso. Hupo means under. Tasso means command. You come under his command, under his authority. But he's not a boss, and he doesn't come in and tell you what to do. Well, he might tell you once, and then that'll be the last of that. So bottom line is when you look at the Bible, you see that the wife submits, but submission is not. He's a boss, and he tells me what to do. Submission is recognizing that God has placed him as the head and that we're under that authority. And we, we from the, our end of it, we recognize that God is our head, that Jesus Christ is our head. We're under his authority. And that's why when Jesus says in Matthew, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. We say, that's right. He's our authority. We come under him. We have different gifts and abilities but under his authority, we obey the word of God. So as the wife comes under the authority of the husband, not, he's not the boss, he, she comes under the authority, then we as the church, we submit to the authority of Jesus Christ because he is the one who died. He is the one who gives eternal life. He is life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the resurrection of the life. He gives eternal life. We come under him. He is our authority. And so with all the gifts, talents, and abilities that God's given us, we come under that authority. So the first thing that the wife does... Yes? So define being under authority. Okay, he comes in and he says, I think we ought to move to Chicago. And you say, I don't want to move to Chicago. And so since he is the head, you can't have... You have to have a head because if you said... We don't want to go to Chicago. And he said, we do go to Chicago. It's one-to-one. It doesn't work that way. He ultimately is the head, and he ultimately has to make decisions. But a wise man would say, I, I think we ought to move to Chicago. And you would say, I don't want to move to Chicago. And a wise man would say, tell me why you don't want to go. And you say this, 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 and this. And then he might say, I think you're right. We're not going to go. He has to make the decision. Well, you know, the truth, the truth is feelings come and go. Right. I mean, let's face it, in all relationships, feelings come and go. I mean, when you first meet the person, you're going, ay, 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 you know, and, you know, and then, you know, 35 years later, you go, where, is she in the room? Where? I mean, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Where's my wife? Is she here yet? Is Jean here yet? I have the opposite thing. Yeah, okay. I should agree with everything he said. Of course not. If you, if you agree with everything he said, you wouldn't need but one of you. Okay. And he's taking two people and bringing them together. The father leaves your father and mother and cleaves to the wife of the two become one flesh. And that means you have things, thoughts, and things. And he says, what do you think about this? Not, this is what we're going to do, and there's no question about it. Uh, that, that, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you've got to have your input. And he might say, I, ne- I never thought about it that way. I think you're right. Yeah. He never says that. No. <laughs> That's my point. My point is he's trying to explain the under authority 
let's say that let's say that you said I don't want to go to Chicago. He says yes, and you say all the reasons why, and he says I don't care. I think we ought to go to Chicago. Then what are you going to do? You're going to go to Chicago because you're coming under. You're submitting to the authority above you that way. But that you, that doesn't mean you might one day say I told you so. Yeah. Told you we weren't supposed to. I mean, it, okay. okay, all right. I think I'm in trouble now. But anyway, let's. Let's go to the third one. Okay, this is the bride is to be pure. Just like in Titus chapter 2, it says that we're to be holy and blameless. In, in fact, it's so beautiful because it talks about that the woman would be a, a, a pure vessel. Well, in the same way, the church is to be pure. We're to be righteous and we're to be light in a fallen, a crooked and fallen generation. As in, we're to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 2 says we're not to be conformed to this world. We're supposed to live out who we are in purity, unspotted from the world, so to speak. And we know that we all fall, but the church, the body of Christ, is supposed to be different, different than the world. We're supposed to be the light shining in the world. And so when you think about our, from our end, then the bride does what? Loves, submits, and to be pure. That's what we're supposed to do. We've seen what the husband's supposed to do. We've seen Christ loves us and, um, you know, makes us pure, so to speak, or takes care of us in that way, and then provides and protects. Well, we're supposed to love and submit and be pure. And so it's a, it's a, it's a great role. Now, here's something I just love to do, and I think it's really, really fun, and that is that when you think about this husband-wife relationship, whether it is, by the way, in the Old Testament, Israel is called the wife of Jehovah. And in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. So that all goes together. So I want to I just show you, just for fun, the whole idea of a Jewish wedding. This is how they did it. And when you read this and we see what they did, we see it matches exactly what God did for us. So let's look at it for a second. The first one is that, that in that day and time, so somebody wanted to get married, so usually the fathers would meet. Sometimes in the villages there was a matchmaker that would actually look at people, come to fathers and say, I think that son and that daughter would be a great match. Or sometimes even the fathers would say, you know, I think my son and your daughter would be a great match, that kind of thing. And, of course, they also knew that they already knew each other. They might be attracted to each other. The daughter may have come to her daddy and said, that's a great-looking guy over there. I mean, I, and he may have come to, her, to his daddy and say, Daddy, I, if there's a way, I maybe see that could work out someday. Anyway, so the father then would probably talk to the other father, and it's kind of being set up. So the father would send his son. He'd say, okay, you need to go. You need to go to the household, and you need to talk to her father, and you need to talk to her. So this, just in that way, God sent his son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Well, he would come with a price. It was money. It was actually money. It was money that he would present to the father as sort of like a down payment, as somewhere like the dowry aspect. I'm going to give some money for your daughter, okay? Because a daughter is not a son in that day and time. The son did the work, in the fields especially. So the daughter, he needed to get some money for the daughter, okay? So there was a price, and it was the money. Well, there's a price for us. And that, that price is, that was paid was Jesus Christ. He paid the price. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. He paid the price for us. The third thing is the bride would come in, and you've heard me say this many times. So the bride would come into the room, and usually there's a table in the room, and there's the two fathers in the room, and then there's the groom or the one that wants to marry her, and they probably already know each other, maybe love each other, ready to get married anyway. So she comes in, and what his job is he takes and pours two little, little glasses, two little whatever, two little cups of wine. 
and he sets them on the table, and he's there. And what's supposed to happen is if she does want to marry him, she picks up one, and, he, and they drink it, and then if everybody says, this is wonderful. If she turned around and walked out the room, then that's a no-go, you know. And so you're not real happy if she, she leaves. Well, the bride comes and drinks the cup. Basically, we come, we, we take the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, what does it say? This is my body, this is my blood. This do in remembrance of me. So we believe. So then, then while she's there, she's drinking, everything's good. He says the following words. I'm going to my father's house and I will prepare a place. And when it gets ready, I will come get you. Does that sound familiar? Because what happened in those days, they didn't have apartments. They didn't have, he didn't marry his wife and they moved to Chicago. You know, he married his wife and he brought her back to his father's home, and usually while they're waiting in between, he goes back and prepares a room, builds onto the house, usually a room for him and his bride. That's what they did. And so he actually says, I'll go back, you know, I'll go back and prepare a place for you when I get it ready. I will come get you. What did Jesus say in John 14? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house, there are many what? There are many rooms. If it wasn't that way, I told you, I'm going to go prepare a place for you when I get it ready. I will come back and get you. That's exactly what he's done for us. So where is he right now? Where is our Jesus? He's what? He's preparing a place for us, right? Isn't that what he told us? Okay, so then, guess what? The bride waits, and the bride goes, he could come at any time, because I never know when it's going to be ready, right? And what do we do? We wait because he could come at any time, and we never know when he's going to be ready. He could come, as Jesus said, he could come at any time. Come at any time. And so when he comes, the father, usually when it's ready, the son would go back to the father and say, Father, what do you think? Is the room ready? Does it look like it's okay? And he says, yes, you, 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 can, you can go. And Jesus is waiting for the father. You know what did the father say? What did he say? The father said, just wait, and I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. He said, I'm getting it all ready. So the, the father decides. Then the groom comes. Now, this is probably one of the most unique parts of the whole thing because the bride never knows when he's coming, and the groom could come at any second. And normally when he came, the groom would have his best men, and they would come, and they could come at any time, and they would come with a shout. Sometimes they actually had a trumpet. Sometimes they'd come, and they would just grab the girl. They grabbed her. The person I went to Israel with in 1976 was Dr. Mark Cameron. He had a mission to Jewish people. He was in Israel once. He said they were, they were like a group of about 20 of them were standing on, the, on one of the streets, and they heard this noise. And it was shouting and cheering and everything, and he looked, and this car drew, drove up, and this little girl was standing on the side, and a guy jumped out and grabbed her. It was his bride. He threw her in the car, and they took off, and everybody was clapping and cheering. Uh, so it could happen. So the groom would come with a shout. And what, is, what does ours say? He comes with a shout with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. He's going to come get us. It's going to be a shout. And then when he comes, they would do this. They would have a seven-day wedding chamber. Like, we don't always think about that, but they would have a quick ceremony thing. And then they would go, and they would be by themselves basically for seven days. And then they're going to have the banquet. So they're going to be gone for seven days. Well, when Jesus comes and gets us, how long are we going to be gone? Seven years, that's the tribulation time period. So we're going to be gone for seven years uh, with him. And then is the marriage supper. 
And so after the seven days, they would come back and they have the big feast. It was called the marriage supper. And if you remember in the Bible, we talked about this, where at the marriage supper, sometimes there would be people who were invited who didn't show up, and there were people who showed up that weren't invited. And sometimes somebody said, I don't think you're supposed to be here at the banquet. Okay. And they left. And sometimes the people who wanted to be at the banquet were in the outer what? Outer darkness. And that's why when Jesus talked about at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there'll be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and people come from all around and they'll be there. And some of the sons of the kingdom, which means believers, will be in the outer darkness. That means they didn't get to go to the banquet. Faithful believers get to go to the banquet. Unfaithful believers don't get to go to the banquet. Whoa. Oh, I hope I get to go. Well, if not, I, 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 I probably have to have a box to stand on to look in to see what's going on in the banquet, you know. But anyway, so there's the marriage supper, and then there's the marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's so fantastic. So when you think about it, what does the groom do? He loves, he bought us, he provides and protects, he returns, and there's great celebration. That's what the groom does, and that's what, that's what he's supposed to do in real life, and that's what Jesus Christ does. For the bride, we love him because he first loved us. We submit under his authority. We're supposed to be pure, and we're looking for the glorious appearing, and that's what they were doing there. So let me just give you this. So let's think about it. So let's remember what the groom did. This is what Jesus did for us. He loved us enough to die and to rise again. He bought us. He shed his blood. Just like, just like the groom would come with the price, Jesus Christ came with the price, the, the wages of sin. The wages of sin is what? It's death. So he came to die. That's what, that was the price. He provides and protects. Just like the husband is supposed to provide and protect, the husband is supposed to love enough to die, the husband you know, purchases us, so to speak. He provides and protects. And then the last thing, he's coming again. He's coming again. This is what Jesus is doing. And we're going to be with him for all eternity. With that in mind, as the bride, let's love Christ and respond. Think about it. We're supposed to be pure and holy as we await the return of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, paid for our sins, and purified for himself a people of his own possession, zealous of good deeds. That's what that passage says in Titus 2, 11, 12, 13, uh, and 14, actually. I just quoted 13 and 14. So there, there's a lot there. And so as we look at this, Wow. So what do we? We're the bride. And so what do we do? Well, we're, we're supposed to do what? Love him and, and uh, respond to him and submit to him and be pure and to be looking for his glorious appearing because he's going to come at any second. I know that people always remember we talk about signs and people say signs. And, and let's just say this. Uh, for the second coming, there are a lot of signs and even things in our world now are shaping up to look like Things are getting ready for the second coming. But if there's a second coming, there's got to be what? Got to be the rapture. He's got to come in the clouds first because you've got to have the seven-year tribulation. So he can come in any second.